Welcome to Creating Presence with your hosts, Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yannisey. Over the next hour, you'll learn about the processes that steer our hearts and minds and how to improve our collective social health. Welcome to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Yannisey. Sarah and Hi, everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sarah. I walked over you. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, Sarah and I have developed an organizational intervention to help organizations integrate trauma-informed practice. And we use the word presence as an acronym for partnership and power, reverence and restoration, emotional wisdom and empathy, safety and social responsibility, embodiment and enactment, nature and nurture, culture and complexity, and emergence and evolution. Today, we're going to look at um, at the R in the acronym of reverence and restoration. And we're going to take a deeper dive into this topic with a social health focus on the challenges of healthcare and mental health care service delivery. Yeah, a lot of the organizations that are using Creating Presence um, are healthcare and mental health care organizations. So um, I have a lot of experience now, not just in working in mental health, um, but also with organizations that are doing the same and trying to use trauma-informed practices. Um, and there are a lot of things I'm finding uh, from my own experience and also in coaching that are uh, sort of universal issues in trauma-informed practice with uh, organizations. And, and one of the things that really comes up a lot is this um, fight or flight reaction that systems have. So the same way that uh, individuals who've experienced trauma, adversity, or chronic stress respond with fight or flight, so do the organizations themselves. And that results in a lot of problems with patient care. Uh, and we see that through re-traumatizing um, inadvertently rather than restoring. So a lot of the work that we're doing has been on helping them recognize uh, the risks around confusing accountability with punishment. Um, so our work in reverence and restoration is about using restorative approaches. Um, we've been doing a lot of work around performance reviews, really helping to identify what's important to staff members um, who are being evaluated, uh, what's important to them about the work, how do we help them feel respected, um, and also how people respond to incidents, uh, you know, critical incidents. And the reason that those things are so important in our work is that organizations can really, under that fight or flight response, start to focus on survival instead of on people. So it looks like focusing more on money as the highest priority, um, being less compassionate or understanding, or staff feeling like they're replaceable parts uh, in a, you know, a one, a one cog in a wheel. And that often starts at the top. That's what I've seen, right? And as it happens more and more, the you-know-what 
flows downhill, right? So decisions are made somewhere in the hierarchy above the actual caregivers, but they don't have any input into those decisions, even when it profoundly affects the work that they're doing. And people respond. Some people respond by just feeling like it's inevitable and there's nothing they can do. And other people get really angry and can take it out on each other or on the clients. And some people speak up uh, and that puts them at risk. They can get into trouble in some institutions, uh, particularly those um, that uh, where there's a sense of institutional betrayal. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about institutional courage and how important that is, that it's it has to be safe to speak up about your concerns. So we're going to expand this conversation about healthcare and mental health care um, with our guests, who happen to be two people who are shaping trauma-informed health care, mental health care, and addiction services. And they are going to share their own perspectives on what has happened and also what needs to change in these systems. Dr. Maggie Bennington-Davis is the Senior Medical Director for HealthShare Oregon and the co-author with Tim Murphy of Restraint and Seclusion, the model for eliminating their use in healthcare. Welcome, Maggie. Hi. Great to have you. It's great to be here. And our other guest is Tim Murphy, who's also with us. After many years in mental health services, Tim is the founder and the CEO of Bridgeway Recovery Services in Salem, Oregon. So welcome, Tim. Good morning. Welcome, Sandy. Nice to see you and Sarah and Maggie. This is this will be fun to have this discussion. Well, you both have spent a long time in your careers in mental health and social services. And I first knew you many years ago when you were running together a psychiatric inpatient unit. And you you were both working on making that inpatient program trauma-informed before there was even a word for it. That word didn't even exist yet. So um, from your perspective now, um, how are we doing in terms of trauma-informed care and providing reverence and restoration to the clients um, that are in under our care. Maggie, you want to take that for a minute? Yeah, yeah. It's um, First of all, thank you for the invitation to be part of this discussion. It's really uh, great to be here. And, you know, looking back at that time, and Sandy, I noticed how you really stressed the long, long time <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, it's going into like multiple decades at this point. And, you know, when I look back at that time, I'm so proud of the work that we did um, back then. And those lessons really from you, Sandy, stay with me in everything I've done since, all the jobs I've had since and uh, all the initiatives that um, I've been engaged in and both in work and in life, I would say. And, you know, I do think things are better there's a better awareness of the effects of trauma generally, um, whether it be in our schools or in um, healthcare, certainly in mental health care, but also of how systems, especially mental health treatment systems, do indeed have the potential to create trauma, sometimes by their very nature, like when they're involuntary. And I think, you know, seclusion and restraint and involuntary medication 
are the most blatant examples, but there are a hundred other examples too, you know, taking people's personal property, preventing them from visiting with their loved ones, um, having rigid schedules and consequences if rules aren't followed, and and then probably a thousand more subtle ones, you know, treatment team meetings without the person themselves present, the language used to describe people and their symptoms. And I think there's a greater awareness across the spectrum in mental health treatment about those things. So I, I'd say things are better, but not cured. And I also see replication of trauma in non-mental health health settings, such as emergency rooms and hospitals themselves, and even in primary care. And in some ways, I think behavioral health is doing better than the rest of healthcare because of its knowledge of trauma and and non-trauma-informed health services result in people, especially people of color, people who have immigrated, people who use a language other than English, not seeking or accessing care or receiving good care, which in turn results in these tremendous disparities in health outcomes. At least that's what we're seeing in our data at HealthShare. The people with the most health conditions that aren't getting care are the people most disenfranchised from a system that doesn't make it easy or welcoming. And I think that comes from structural inequities, which have spawned traumatic experiences for centuries. So we're just, I think we writ large in healthcare, just starting to look at trauma-informed health systems, um, you know, on a larger scale. But Tim, what's your uh, recollection of way back when, way so, back, um, the turn of yeah, the century, you. you know? Yeah. Thank you. And it, I too, it's a, it's a pleasure and honor to be with uh, you three uh, in this discussion. And yeah, it goes back to, I think, 2001, when uh, Sandy, you first came and visited us out here in Oregon and looked at our inpatient unit, which was a very traditional unit. And and we weren't doing anything outside of what was considered the norm at that time. But what we were doing um, was not really uh, in line with, with, with current thinking. And it's true that there wasn't a trauma-informed care concept at that time. Um, but there was an awareness of trauma. And I think, Sandy, you really brought us to, to think about that. And so it's been a slow slog. Both Maggie and I spent several years at that hospital. And we, I think we left in 2005 and have gone on to other organizations. In that time, the term trauma-informed care emerged. We're here, we see it everywhere. So I think in that sense, there's been a significant cultural improvement in lots of uh, venues. Uh, Maggie went through a couple that were non-medical uh, settings, but also we're seeing it in schools. Uh, I have counselors on every school in Salem-Kaiser School District that are talking about trauma-informed care uh, with students and, and also with teachers. Uh, we're working with organizations to set up environments of care that reflect non-coercive environments that are more welcoming and supportive. Uh, in the last, oh, about a year and a half ago, I opened a new a clinic um, completely designed with the principles of trauma-informed care involved in it so that the people, not only for the people that come there for service, but also the employees that work in that environment. And I, I think those things start to set the tone and start to set the, the feeling that uh, there's hope here, there's help here, and it's safe to come here. 
And so uh, based on that work that we did with you, Sandy, uh, I'm with Maggie. Everything I do, uh, your voice sometimes in the back of my head. Sometimes that's a good voice. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it makes me work harder, uh, but I appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Tim. We uh, really covered, I think, a wide range um, in in what you both have said, really sort of highlighting the micro uh, experiences, you know, like restraint and seclusion as, uh, you know, part of replicating trauma experiences for individual patients, and then really understanding uh, more at the macro level, the the systems of oppression uh, that that impact uh, care. What kinds of things are you doing uh, to change how care is getting delivered, and and what are you seeing as a result? That's a great question, Sarah. I oh, one thing um, you want, um, Sandy, or you mentioned something about organizations and the cost of healthcare. One thing we learned was to really be good at this work. It, it took a bigger and different type of investment with staffing, with uh, an environment of care that hospital systems sometimes don't understand why you're making that investment. And I think in our in our history, we we saw that play out for us where we increased the cost of care, but really reduced the, uh, the the coercive environment, really improved the patient experience, really improved patient outcomes. And it's it, you need to have your full executive organizational support in order to understand that. And I think one of the mistakes we might have made early on is we just launched our own little process without really educating why we were doing that. Now, when we started to get positive results, that really helped. When we saw uh, lengths of stay shorten, when we saw outcomes get better, when we saw the use of, of medications needed by patients reduce, when the numbers of seclusion and restraint uh, came down and eventually just totally went away, um, we had some you know, bragging rights as far as that this 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 was successful, uh, and it really encourages me in the in the future work. Once we left the hospital, was to really have everybody on board uh, when you launch an initiative, and understand what you're going to do and why you're going to do it, and that patient's voice and patient care needs to be integral into the work that we're doing. You want to add to that, Maggie? Yeah, I've in a minute. Oh, go ahead. One minute. When, when we have one minute, go ahead. Yeah, I see that probably 30 seconds by now. I just really appreciate how, um, Sandy, at the get-go, you um, emphasized trauma-informed care kind of throughout, not just um, in direct care, but also throughout the hierarchies of our systems. And so I'd say that's where I spend a lot of my time these days is uh, kind of climbing through that hierarchy and trying to make sure that um, it's consistent uh, trauma, the, the tenets of trauma-informed care are consistent. Yeah. Thanks, Maggie and Tim. Um, and thank you for listening to Creating Presence. Coming up after the break, we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Maggie Bennington-Davis and Tim Murphy. We'll be right back after this message. 
Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you would like your organization to be aligned in its values, practices, and skills to be trauma-informed, trauma-responsive, and trauma-resilient, Creating Presence is the program you are looking for. The Creating Presence model is an online and coach certification program authored by internationally renowned Dr. Sandra Bloom. This program is designed to help your organization become certified as a safe and value-aligned place for both your staff and clients. Creating Presence is managed by Lakeside, the host of this broadcast. For more information as to how your organization can create presence, go to creatingpresence.net. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. If you are a professional who would like to know more about how to provide care for individuals who have experienced trauma and adversity, Lakeside Global Institute can provide you with one of two intensive certification courses. You can be certified as a trauma-sensitive professional, which is a 50-hour online training experience. Or, for a deeper experience, you can become a Lakeside Global Institute Certified Trauma Competent Professional through a live Zoom process that is 75 hours of well-researched and practically applied training. Lakeside Global Institute provides professionals with the highest level of training sophistication and integrity for you to be proficient in trauma-responsive care. You can learn more by going to lakesidetraining.org for more information. Lakeside your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Welcome back to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Yanisey, and we're talking with our guests, Dr. Maggie Bennington-Davis and Tim Murphy, about the challenges of caregiving and how we can move toward a caregiving system that focuses more on reverence, respect, and restoration. So, Mags, you've been in management positions for a long time in a lot of different systems and institutions. So can you describe what, at this point, your ideas are around what good care really looks like? Yeah, thanks, Sandy. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to get um, the exact answer that you're looking for because I keep thinking of that mantra that you know comes in various forms: physician, heal thyself, put your oxygen mask on yourself first before assisting others. The best care comes from those who have had the best care. Loved people, love people. You know, it took Tim and me some time to understand that when we were uh, first working in the hospital twenty some years ago. Um, and, you know, we wanted to make services healing instead of coercive. And that's when we first engaged you, Sandy, to help us. It's creating Sanctuary had just come out a couple of years before the Adverse Childhood Experience study was out and being studied. I was a young leader and I was really eager to dive right in and just get staff to start doing things right, you know, just because we said so. 
And they kept asking, what about us? Which, you know, honestly, I ignored. Um, and then I eventually got irritated until eventually it became impossible to ignore it. And with coaching from Sandy, uh, we reversed course and concentrated on staff first. And eventually that effort really paid off big time. And now in my current job, we're HealthShare, and HealthShare is a coordinated care organization with 460,000 Medicaid members. We have over 20,000 providers of all types that we contract with in our network. And I'm seeing unprecedented rates of burnout and cynicism and moral injury. It's really kind of terrifying. And I think with the tremendous commercialization and monetization and bureaucracy of healthcare, providers have been asked to do more and more with less and less time and less and less appreciation. Um, and then the pandemic era, I think, spawned a time of anger and division around masks and vaccinations and isolation. And medical providers felt disenfranchised even from their own patients as well as their own profession. Um, and so when I think about good care, it's a lot like what Tim said a few minutes ago about the clinic that he's um, developing. It's hard for me to imagine good care until we get our arms around that, um, having safety and, and deep, that deep respect that providers used to have for their profession and that others of us had for them. I listened to Don Isaac last week on this podcast, and here's a direct quote from her. People want to work where they feel safe, listened to, and effective. And when that's present, then good care can flow from that. So I think good care has to start with that, us getting back to that um, kind of central tenet of um, that kind of deep respect and regard that we have for our work and for each other. I really appreciate, Maggie, your um, comments because they're a good reminder of the importance of reverence, not just for our patients, but also for our staff and the work itself. Um, and it, often the um, reimbursement structures, the barriers to care, um, they really create experiences of discouragement um, for staff and, and for systems. And so I'm curious to hear from both you and Tim about what it might look like to really connect with the concepts of reverence and restoration in, in doing this work in healthcare and in mental health. Well, let me uh, add something. So about 15 years ago, Maggie and I were invited to go to a conference put on by uh, consumers of mental health system uh, services. It was uh, put on by peers and and we were sort of the represented a hospital and we weren't sure we were going to be welcome there. But I was introduced to that phrase that we're all very uh, used to now. Nothing about us without us. There were, you could buy a t-shirt there. Right. And this was really talking to us because we would at that time do, as Maggie said earlier, do treatment planning without the patient necessarily involved the voice of the person that was uh, the services were designed for. And so we sort of adopted that and thought about it as far as patient care, but also became really part of our uh, our staff message as well. And so with uh, Sandy's introduction of community meeting to us, um, 
I've found that that's a, such a valuable piece in our various settings. So in our residential settings, in our outpatient settings, in our uh, inpatient settings, starting each day with a community meeting where the people that work there and the people receiving services sit together, common ground, nobody standing, no clipboards, no keys, just, hey, we've got some time to share together and we're in this together. And that started to change the the tenor of the situation. We saw less conflict in our residential homes when the staff were really open about, you know, I'm here to work and and we're going to share this space together. About six years ago, in talking with patients that had access to primary care but wouldn't go, these are folks that were struggling with symptoms of addiction, symptoms of mental illness. They didn't feel welcomed in their primary care offices in the community. They didn't feel that they were uh, wanted there. And frankly, they, they weren't. They were treated poorly. So we uh, were the first addictions clinic that opened up a primary care clinic inside our addictions clinic. So we hired a, a nurse practitioner at first and then a physician's assistant. We started out two half days um, and it had just exploded in need and use. So now we're seeing uh, we're seeing a thousand patients every month at Bridgeway. And uh, we have a significant load in our primary care because the, uh, and Maggie gave me this, we turned our exam rooms, our medical exam rooms into listening rooms. And so people go in, it looks like, a, you know, an exam room, but we're, we've taught our staff and our patients, our clients, that this is a, time, a safe place where you can talk and we're going to listen to what you have to say. And that speaks to the reverence part, I think, Sarah, that you are asking for. Yes. And, um, and it's simple things like that. Language you use, being open, being invitational, uh, that makes such a big difference. And they don't cost anything. Right. Right. right? You know, it's right. kindness and niceness and having an open heart and a loving attitude that uh, creates a space where, you know, that's where healing occurs. Well, and in that example, it really strikes me that by demonstrating reverence for your patients and that use of language, you really open the door for an experience of restoration, of restoration of trust, restoration of relationships. What about you, Maggie? You know, for some reason, I'm thinking of... Um... And I'm sure it's kind of riffing off of Tim's stories. I'm thinking of uh, an initiative that HealthShare started now about 10 years ago called Project Nurture. And, uh, you know, the pro um, sometimes pregnant women with uh, substance use issues are sort of shunned by all systems. So um, often, you know, maternity providers are scared of uh, a woman with substance use and often substance use providers are um, reluctant to engage in treatment with a, a woman who is pregnant. And, and then, of course, the Department of Human Services, um, well, you know, all those providers are reporters to the mandatory right. reporters. And, the, and so the person runs the risk of you know, having to give up their 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 child. And so we realized that the very most, you know, vulnerable and in need people didn't have easy access to care, certainly welcoming access. So we created a program exactly designed for them. 
And it almost starts with the people who want to work with that population, you know, and uh, have a real passion for it. And then we partnered up with DHS. So, you know, the babies wouldn't get um, taken and uh, put together a whole trauma-informed program that, you know, includes peers and doulas and uh, very willing, passionate providers and um, group experiences and loving environments, as Tim said, and uh, some sort of reassurance that uh, there was going to be support before, during, and after birth, parenting support afterwards. We're even, we're even looking at adding housing. You know, no child should be born into um, houselessness. And, and that program is so, when I think of the word restoration, I mean, everything about that program is beautiful. The providers don't have the terrible ethical and moral dilemma um, the the workers in the program see, see frankly, miracles every single day. Uh, there are far fewer babies in the foster child system. The costs are way lower because the babies aren't in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit anymore. I mean, it's just a win, 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 win everywhere you look. And so I think as we get smarter about programs like that, that are, you know, looking at how do we disenfranchise people and how can we flip that on its head and engage people in that, you know, loving and passionate way that, um, you know, we start to make progress. And, you know, we're doing that in other um, programs as well, uh, just starting that. But it's, boy, it's sure slow going and it really is kind of <laughs> program by program by program. Because it's so... It's, it requires such a shift in the paradigm that we've all been, you know, functioning against for so long. What, given what we've been talking about, what, what are the lessons learned from this collective trauma that we've been through in terms of the pandemic? What did you, what did you experience um, in terms of um, how, the challenges and the victories uh, as a result of the pandemic. Wow, uh, I think the lessons are still we're still learning. I don't think the uh, uh, we know yet. I don't think we know how much damage we did the way we, the pandemic was managed. Uh, the uh, alienation, the separation, the fear uh, really caught and. It, May, may have been all necessary, but it still had a damage potential to it. Um, one of the things that in my clinic and what I saw from my colleagues in the community, people learned to to, to move quickly to provide services. So within, within 48 hours, we had to close all of our outpatient clinics and turn all of our inpatient uh, counselors into uh, uh, remote therapists. We gave them all uh, iPads and uh, headphones and said, go home, call people and do whatever you can do. And so we, we did that work. And we also saw slowly um, the people that we were serving um, respond. And so, and one of the things we learned was that some folks that weren't coming into the clinic that often, because they live an hour away or an hour and a half away, well, all of a sudden we were seeing them more frequently because we were connecting with them remotely. And so there's some of that piece we want to keep. There's some connections that we made that were good. Uh, I think we've come out of the fog of the fear. And uh, I'm worried, I'm really worried about the kids to be 
to be really clear, I think we did some damage by keeping kids out of school for 18 months. And uh, we're seeing that now with increase in substance abuse, increase with absenteeism. So we're trying to, we've built some teams to really reach out and try to help the schools bring kids back in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tim, as you're describing these, um, you know, issues that have come up over the pandemic, it strikes me that it, we're really talking about kind of overlapping systems and overlapping structures and needs. And it connects me back to what you were saying, Maggie, about creating that the program um, for addiction treatment and, and pregnant women and the efforts that you were able to make to build those bridges uh, around uh, different care systems. And I'm curious, to both of you, how have you experienced that? I mean, I think defining good care includes, at least in what I've heard from you, these collaborations. How how do you start? How do you start to make that happen um, in order to create these really amazing, innovative programs? Yeah, I love that question. You know, um, coordinated care organizations, which I think is a, a model unique to Oregon, is really rests exactly on that. And even at their inception, contractually, we're obligated to reach outside the traditional healthcare system and hold hands with uh, early learning hubs and schools and uh, community-based organizations, social organizations, and so forth. Um, and uh, so I think the pandemic forced us to do that, really forced the walls of uh, the traditional medical system to come tumbling down because the people that we weren't getting to are the people who were, you know, didn't touch the healthcare system and were disenfranchised from the system and wouldn't, you know, touch it with a 10 foot pole. And so, in order to get to those folks, we had to work through churches and community based organizations, social organizations, um, you know, immigrant offices, uh, preschools, that kind of thing. And so, I think that um, set us. Uh, we thought we were working across the walls of medicine before the pandemic, and then we find found out how much more we had to do. So, you know, we started holding hands with those other organizations, and now we're determined not to let go. Um, so one of the interesting things uh, Oregon is about to do is make housing um, a Medicaid benefit for um, certain population, so paid for out of Medicaid. And, you know, medicine doesn't know anything about housing. And so to figure out how to um, kind of get into that system, um, the housing system, at least uh, where we are in the metro area of Portland, Oregon, um, it's a huge undertaking. And we just, every day, we discover how much we don't know, we didn't know, we don't know about that system, which has its own entire, you know, ethos and culture and so forth. And um, frankly, is <laughs> at its roots a lot more trauma-informed than the medical system. So that's been uh, sort of a joy. But I think the pandemic helped us um, figure out those things that we don't know that we need to kind of get more humble and uh, and approach each other in a new and different way. Yeah, sort of um, thinking, I'm thinking about 
having reverence for the work of others and kind of connecting it in that way too. Tim, any yeah. final thoughts? In yeah, the minute we have left. <laughs> um, I'll be really quick. Uh, Maggie mentioned the coordinated care organizations. And one of the things that we learned through the pandemic was to uh, look for uh, services that were needed that weren't Medicaid covered and go to these organizations like Maggie's and others in the state and say, we want to provide services for family members, even when the identified patient isn't willing to participate. So we want to work with the kids, the spouse, and the family members that traditionally Medicaid wouldn't pay for. And we've been given uh, the ability to do that. Wow. So we've now started groups for uh, folks. And you know what happens when the when the spouses come in and the kids come in and that patient doesn't want to participate, they show up. Sure. So, so we're 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 doing some innovative things in Oregon. I'm really proud to be part of it. Great. Yeah, thank you lucky. so much. <laughs> We want to thank you for listening to Creating Presence. We just heard from Dr. Maggie Bennington-Davis and Tim Murphy. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with Dr. Caroline Finkel and Dr. Eli Muir about Charlie Health, an innovative young company. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you wish to go into production to provide your own trauma training, Lakeside Productions can provide you studio rental, design, filming, editing, learning management support, and consultation for video streaming for your organization or systems of care. Lakeside Productions has developed over 50 courses and videos that are all trauma-based and customized with a variety of applications. If you would like to have more information regarding Lakeside Productions, go to our website at lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. In today's schools, there's arisen a critical need to equip educators and empower professionals to guide students as to how to overcome life obstacles and become successful and resilient. If you are a school professional, Neurologic by Lakeside can be a tremendous resource for your school and staff. Neurologic by Lakeside provides knowledge, tools, and practical solutions that can be implemented immediately to support a student's success and improve the school community. Through the training, coaching, resources, and curriculum, you can discover the expertise you need to meet the challenges that educators face each and every day. For more information, go to lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Welcome back to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Yannese. We want to talk in this segment to some people representing a young and innovative company called Charlie Health. Um, 
<clears throat> Charlie Health is providing online intensive outpatient mental health services to children and families in states really across the country, usually to areas where there really are very few options for care where the, where the clients live. So one of our guests is Dr. Caroline Fenkel. She is one of the founders of the company. Um, and I like to acknowledge that her doctorate is in social work. So she's a social worker just like me. Um, great to have you here. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. And our other guest is Dr. Eli Muir who is a child psychiatrist. He is the medical director of Charlie Health um, and is the founding medical director, so um, has been responsible for, well, the growth that you're going to hear about. So welcome, Eli. Thank you for having me. So Charlie Health is relatively new, um, and your model of care is really different from um, other types of uh, providers. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create a fully online IOP model, um, intensive outpatient model, for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, and how you use trauma-informed practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, I think that one of the things that um, I did throughout my doctorate uh, at social in social work was um, I did a dissertation on the use of technology in a therapeutic setting. And what I did was I sat with 40 social workers and asked them about how it is that they would use technology in any type of therapy session. My hope through this was to design some type of an app that we could use to track different emotions and feelings and share that data back and forth, which in 2016 was like a kind of a different idea. Nowadays, we know that you know, AI and measurement-based care and being able to share data back and forth is something that's happening. Um, but back then, nobody really had portals and things like that. So I was like, okay, what if we were to just take this app? And I sat with these 40 social workers and I said, you know, what do you think about technology in a therapeutic space? And they said, I hate FaceTime. And I was like, okay, no, we're not, we're actually not talking about FaceTime. They're like, I also hate Zoom. I'm like, actually, we're, <laughs> we're not talking about Zoom either. They're like, I hate virtual care. And the next, so, you know, I had, I don't know, five focus groups, each with eight people in it. Every single one had the same theme, which is that providers did not like virtual care, which the research shows us that prior to COVID, patients loved virtual care, um, providers not so much. And when you would ask them these, finally, I gave up. <laughs> I was like, I guess I'm just writing a dissertation now about how <laughs> providers don't like virtual care, um, which I, happens a lot, right, in your dissertation. Um, and, you know, basically, um, it, it's so funny because I look back and after COVID, the people who were the most vocal about how if I am not in person, I'm not going to be able to see their body language. I do gestalt therapy. I do MD chair. Those people don't have an office. They have not had an office space since COVID. They were like, I had no idea that this could be, that this could work as well as it could. So um, I was not a believer in this. And when um, my co-founder called me and said, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of research and I've been thinking about this and I think it could be really powerful and really incredible and provide access to people who really don't have it. Um, I was like, you know, that's a really cute idea, but it's never going to work. Um, and so... Fast forward, COVID hit, and you know, just like what Maggie and and Tim were talking about, 
having to switch a brick and mortar partial hospitalization intensive outpatient level of care to uh, virtual in one day, you know, in person March 23rd on Tuesday, you know, virtual on the 24th. I'm crying myself to sleep the night before thinking I'm going to have to do major layoffs. And these are people who I begged to come work for me, who are my friends, who are my family. I don't have to lay them off tomorrow because there's no way that 50 kids are going to jump onto a Zoom link. There's just, it's just not going to happen, um, especially with the way that my dissertation went. And, um, we were wrong. We had um, higher participation. 100% of kids showed up that day. Uh, we had higher participation. We had better outcomes. The better outcomes, I think, Lee, you know, has a lot to do with this idea because uh, we treated teens that parent participation in treatment is the single largest indicator for positive outcomes. So what would happen is we would say, you know, hey, Sandy, um, is mom around? Do you mind bringing mom in? You know, and, and Sandy would be like, "Oh yeah, mom's in the next room. She's working from home." You know, she's on her lunch break, and we would bring mom in, and we would say, "Mom, look, Sandy's been cutting herself. Like, you know, we need to. There's some razors behind you. They're in the bureau. She told me that I could tell you. You need to get them out of her." Suddenly, you're doing wraparound care, right? Like, suddenly you're in the home with them. You're a social. It's it, it was magical. Whereas. When you're in brick and mortar and you find out that a kid cut themselves, you're now calling mom at work. Mom has to leave work early. She has three other kids. She doesn't have a way to get there. It's 45 minutes. She's sitting in the waiting room. You know, I, the access for parents to be involved in care was so important. So between that and um, seeing these outcomes, seeing the participation, and then something really cool happened to me, which being a social worker, you want to help marginalized populations. You want to help people who, you know, are are really struggling and, and who don't have this access. And I didn't get that. I, I wasn't able to fulfill that part of me because I was in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And I also started one outside of DC and one outside of San Francisco. And these just felt, it felt like empty, you know, and, and, um, we had a client call into our admissions line that lived in Pennsylvania, you know, the, the the area between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And um, and they said, we I really want to come to Center for Families. And we said, okay. And if you remember back then during COVID, they waived deductibles. So they didn't have a max out of pocket. They waived the deductible and they were in treatment. This kid had never experienced high quality care, had never experienced flexible scheduling, right? I mean, they're in this rural, they're in like the middle of a cornfield. They're living in a trailer. Like, you know, like they just, they've never experienced multiple time a week care. They've either been to the ER and been in psychiatric unit, or they've gone to once a week counseling at the local community center, which was an hour away, which sometimes they could get to. Um, so experiencing helping individuals from across the state was really powerful. So I went back to my co-founder who presented me with this idea, and I said, you know, we've got to do it. This is really magical stuff. Um, we can get the parents involved. We can help kids that are in rural areas. We can, you know, scale infinitely. Like, as long as you can get enough therapists, you can scale at any amount that you want virtually because it's the office space is not an issue. Um, so yeah, we took patient one September 1st, 2020. Over the last three and a half years, we've treated over 25,000 patients. We're live right now in 30 states and um, we're just incredibly lucky and grateful to everybody who decided to join this mission. I'm happy to talk about trauma-informed care, but I just went on and on and on. So, well, it's, it was yeah. great. Uh, That's great. But I'd like to hear Eli's version of what your experience has been, parallel to Caroline and getting this thing all off the ground. 
I mean, it was amazing to witness her convert to virtual because I would have never thought she would do that. She's a person who loves to be around people and animals. So to see her going virtual, I was like, no way. (laughs) And then me go virtual, please. I'm one of the most extroverted people on the planet, right? So I was a late converter to virtual. In the pandemic, I remember sitting at home. And when they were like, you actually might have to do care virtually from home. You can't go to the hospital. I thought I'll go to the hospital. I'll risk getting COVID. I just can't be at home. Yeah. Yeah. So to now be entirely virtual, you know, over two years into the company at Charlie Health is just shocking to me. And I think what drew me to Charlie Health was number one, exactly what Caroline said about just the access that you could get people from all over. I am from a metropolitan area where there's a lot of hospitals and brick and mortar um, providers. But, you know, I wanted to be able to reach people who are in rural areas far outside of the city, don't have access to a car to drive into urban centers where there's the big academic hospitals. So I think that access really drew me in. And then I think the second part that drew me in was just the opportunity to build a psychiatry team bottom-up that's trauma-informed because I just heard over and over again how sometimes when kids' families were seeking treatment, it actually made them feel worse or they felt more terrified, more alone, more restricted in many ways, right? Um Let's take you out of school, lock, you know, keep you in a medical bed until there's an inpatient unit, put you in an inpatient unit for two to three weeks. Now you've been out of school four weeks. Okay, go back to school. Maybe you have once a week therapy, but you have to drive there. So you now can't do your sports team. So it just like really took people out of that day to day of their life. And I think at times would lead to more isolation. So I think I wanted to make sure that psychiatry was not scary and that we would be really trying to help kids where they are, you know. Um, I'm curious about how, especially based on what you just said, Eli, you know, you want, you were ready to go to the hospital and risk COVID because being isolated was not going to work for you. How do you create a sense of team and connection in that virtual landscape? Well, with my team that we've built over the past couple years, it's really meeting frequently. You know, I meet with everyone one-on-one each week, and that I think helps just having that cadence. And then we meet as a team and try and just run cases by each other and also just be with one another virtually. We actually, I'm in New York City right now because we just had our first off-site where we flew in the team to our headquarters here and all bonded in person, which was pretty incredible and kind of uh, a little odd to finally see people in person. But I think um, with clients, I think it's looking at their room. I think that's like the number one thing I do is I'm like, oh, I love those lights behind you. Oh, is that your cat? You know, (laughs) tell me about them. You know, oh, why don't you bring your dog over and introduce me to them, you know? So I think that's how I do it with clients and with the team. I think it's just meeting frequently and like reminding them that we are still together. What 
what have been the barriers that you guys have encountered? Because it's clear the barriers aren't coming from the clients and you've been able to find clinicians who are willing to, to do the work. But what have been the real challenges that you've encountered trying to get this all up and running and off the ground? Um, I, I think that recruiting is really hard. Um, I think that when you look at supply and demand across the country, we know that the amount of money that people get paid from the payers um, and then the amount of money that they put into their education and then the cost of living, it just it just doesn't match up. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's hard to find individuals that wake up one day and say, I'm going to go to school for an extra two years. I'm going to take a test. And then after that two years, I'm going to take another test and I'm going to be in, you know, somewhere around 70 K of debt. And, um, I'm going to emotionally burn myself out every day listening to trauma stories. Um, and I'm going to make, you know, 58 K a year. <laughs> It's just, it, like, it's hard, right? It's like we, we, it's teachers are very, it's very similar with teachers, right? Um, and it's like these people that are, that are in this industry. So, you know, what, what we try and do at Charlie Health is have a really unique value proposition for the therapists that work for us. You get to work from home. We have great benefits. There's three different ways that you can engage with us. You could be W-2 full-time, W-2 part-time. You can be an independent contractor. We try really hard to treat them well, make them feel really a part of, have that camaraderie. Um, you know, so I think recruiting has definitely been, been a challenge. Um, but you know, we're getting there. Um, what else is a problem with standing things up? I mean, I think one of the things is honestly like software and product development around things like scheduling, like being able to have a portal where a patient can go in and schedule their own sessions based on their, their session, like their schedule, their sibling might have to show up, their mom's schedule, their dad's schedule. Um, and then, you know, when the therapist is available and it has to be after school and and those types of things. But we're very lucky to have a really good product team that um, is working incredibly hard to improve access. We only have a couple minutes left, but I, I'd really, before we go, I'd really like you to share some of what you're seeing in terms of outcomes with your clients, because I think that's so critically important. And I yeah. think you have some data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, basically, I think that one of the most important parts of Charlie Health is collecting data um, and having really good data infrastructure. And very early on, we partner with the University of Pennsylvania, we're partnered with Yale, we're partnered with Florida State University. And, um, you know, what we continue to do is publish. So we have seven peer-reviewed articles that have been published. We just continue to see these declines. And, you know, we see a 49% decline in um, PHQ-9, a 49% in GAD-7, a 71% decrease in self-harm frequency, which is just incredible. And we see these things that stay, um, you know, the same throughout, you know, at three months, six months, not even nine months post-discharge, which we're just so proud of. One of the other things that we're really happy about is keeping kids out of the emergency room. We know that emergency rooms are great for physical health care issues, horrible for mental health care issues, traumatic, just terrible. Um, and so what we see at Charlie Health, typically when somebody leaves an IOP, they go back to a higher level of care at about 20 to 30 percent. How sad. 
like really sad that IOPs are just not effective at keeping kids out of the ED. Um, at Charlie Health, it's 3.3%. Uh, congratulations. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Also, just uh, can you clarify for people who might not be familiar with the um, instruments that you you named, the anxiety measures and depression measures, what, what, yeah, what that absolutely. means? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the PH9 is really around depression symptoms, nine questions. GAD7 is around generalized anxiety, seven questions. We also have the WHO5, five, five questions that looks at wellness and how you're doing. Um, we have a bunch of others that, you know, are alphabet soup, but um, those are just some of them. But we're happy to make sure, Sandy, wherever this goes, we just published our 2023 annual outcomes report, which has everything in there, um, even things that are not in the peer-reviewed articles that we wrote this past year, but will be coming up in 2024. Yeah, terrific. Congratulations. We just heard from Drs. Caroline Finkel and Eli Muir. Join us next week to focus on applications of trauma-informed work in the justice system uh, with Dr. S Stephanie Covington, as well as Rob Reed and Elle Sawyer. You can reach us at creatingpresence.net or voiceamerica.com. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Presence. Join Sandy and Sarah next week for another informational episode. Until we talk again, check us out at www.creatingpresence.net and email us at info at creatingpresence.net. Have a beautiful week.